It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, we've been with you several weeks, uh, not in a row necessarily, but uh, we've had the privilege of worshiping with you several, on several occasions since we've moved back to Winston-Salem uh, back in August. As Mark uh, shared previously, uh, we have known each other for many years. Um, that's my privilege and his burden. Um, I, I had the privilege of, of serving as a youth pastor for several of the young adults here now uh, from Michelle and Sarah and Allison, uh, and, and Kelly's here this morning. Uh, so it's a privilege to come and, and be amongst you once again. Uh, I was telling Pastor Will this morning, it was quite a, uh, a unique situation for me. I've been pastoring for 18 years, so you would think this is no problem. But uh, I almost feel like a school kid getting up in front of his friends and family, since there's so many of you here this morning who, who hold such a significant part of our life and ministry, uh, and so we're grateful uh, to be amongst you once again. Unfortunately, my wife's not here this morning. She and my two daughters, uh, Chloe and Adasso, are in Charlotte with their uh, my wife's mother celebrating Chloe's uh, 10th birthday today, um, and she chose not to celebrate it with me and her brothers, but rather to celebrate it at the American Girl Store in Charlotte, so um, uh, we're, we're sorry that they couldn't be with us. Uh, again, it is my privilege, and I take it very seriously anytime I have the opportunity to share the Word of God. And it is with humility that I come this morning and, and seek to open up uh, this Word in Mark, where we're, where we're going to spend some time this morning, and, and pray that God will, first of all, if there is anyone here who is ru- ru- um, wrestling with the gospel at this time, that God will use this Word to penetrate your hearts and give you understanding and, and draw you to Himself. Uh, for the rest that are uh, firm and confident pro- uh, proclaimers of the name of Christ as Christians, it is my desire and my hope, as I believe it is Mark's in the recording of his gospel, uh, to further enlighten us and to motivate, to compel, to energize us, to be harbingers of the gospel at every moment of our lives, no matter what the cost. So before we look to this text this morning in Mark, let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that... We have the opportunity to gather this morning in, uh, with the body of believers that you've called together. I count it a privilege to be amongst them this morning, and I pray that, Lord, you would move in our midst. Uh, Lord, we pray that which we know we've been promised, that the Holy Spirit would work am- amongst our hearts to transform us, to illuminate us, that we might uh, see the beauty and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's our, des- our desire this morning as we Look to your word, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand. And most importantly, that it would result in open hearts that would fully and gladly embrace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And that it would transform our lives like nothing else ever could in this life. So God, have your way in our midst. In spite of this messenger, I pray that your spirit would speak loudly and clearly to us in these moments. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. As I, men- <clears throat> excuse me, as I mentioned uh, briefly, uh, for the past 18 years, I've had the privilege of serving as youth pastor, associate pastor, pastor in several different churches. And, and over that time, and especially over the last several months, I've had the opportunity to be in many other churches. And, and one thing that I find in common is that I've never been personally in a church that would not gladly affirm things like, it's our call to proclaim the gospel. 
uh, we're supposed to be mission-minded, we're supposed to be gospel-centered, and, and all those, those phrases we can kind of accumulate to try to uh, articulate who we're supposed to be. I've never experienced a church that says, no, that's not what I am. Now, we, we don't want to be about that. Now, however, I have been amongst churches who, while they would say that, in their practice, they do something quite differently. You see, and I don't, I don't say this to be cruel to any churches, but it seems to be a common trend amongst many churches in our day that while we know all the right stuff to say, all the Christianese, that when it comes to the practical outworking of all those statements, that there's, there's some, a, quite a different response. There's a great bit of hesitation because I think we come to understand, at least to some sense, that to truly be harbingers of the gospel individually and corporately, it's going to likely cost us something. Now, we say that. We know that. We talk about the cross of Christ. We talk about bearing that and counting the cost and all those things. And we say all those things. And again, I don't know any churches that I've been a part of that wouldn't say, yes, that's exactly right. But yet, when it comes to working that out, it seems like we are quite adverse at times with that very reality. And in fact, it seems that so many well-intentioned people Um, gospel-believing, I believe Christians, uh, while they know and say all those things, that they're often well-intentioned, deceived people about our own selfishness. That what happens is we begin to be introspective more than we are to look outwardly when it comes to the gospel. And as a result, and you you understand this very quickly, is that, that many churches, if not most churches, spend way more resource and way more energy on how attractive we might be as a church in our buildings and and how we might somehow woo the the enemies of God to love our Savior by increase of buildings, increase of programs, and and having a well-oiled machine. Now, not that those things in themselves are bad, but it seems that the trend in the church is that those are the kinds of things that we put, we're putting our money to, that we're putting our energy and our time and our focus upon. And so that in doing all the things that, that many churches are doing for the sake of the gospel, that in fact the gospel becomes disguised and lost somewhere in the background as a result. Well, the question comes then is what is... What is it that beyond that we're supposed to have our focus on? What is it that the gospel is centrally to be about? And I think that that answer might be best summed up as we're moving to our text. But let me focus us somewhere else first into some statements that Paul himself made. In Philippians, Paul spoke of, uh, of a servant named Epaphroditus. And he said that Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus was filling up what was lacking in the Philippians' service to him. And then in another statement in the Colossian church, Paul made a statement about himself that he was filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ for his body, the church. Now, I don't think that Paul intended to say that the Philippians failed to do something, that they were, they were a failure in their attempts and Epaphroditus somehow made up for that. And I don't think that Paul was saying that somehow Christ failed or fell short of something in his sufferings on behalf of the church. But rather what he was saying in that was that Epaphroditus, as God's servant, was fulfilling the very call of the Philippians. He was the real expression of their love for him in person. He was that experience of the service of the Philippian church. And he was so at great cost and great risk, even the risk of his own life. 
And then Paul himself was saying, not saying that, that Christ somehow didn't do what he's supposed to do, but rather that Paul was serving as the real expression in person of the afflictions of Christ in his body himself at great cost and often at the very risk of his own life. And that being summed up, I think that what we often miss is the reality that the gospel will require great sacrifice. We try so desperately to be harmagers of the gospel without ever really having to experience the gospel for ourselves. Well, let that one soak in. As individuals and as a corporate body, we try so desperately to be harbingers of the gospel without ever really having to experience the gospel in our daily lives for ourselves. Now, as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 1 and this final narrative of this first chapter that, that Mark records for us, I want you to consider uh, this question. What is the greatest sacrifice that you yourself have had to make for the sake of the gospel. Or maybe corporately, what is the greatest sacrifice that 121 has had to make for the sake of the gospel? Or maybe in, in, to put it in another way, what has this declaring and displaying the gospel cost you? What does it cost you? Now the chances are, in reality, that most of us here have never really suffered any great loss for the sake of the gospel. Now, it's not to make light of some of your personal situations that I'm not aware of. But in most cases, most of us have not made any great sacrifice as a result of the gospel in our lives. At least not any sacrifice that is of any great significance to see the gospel go forth. In our text this morning, we'll discover that, that Mark continues to point to what we've heard for the last several weeks uh, to the authority and the power of, of this man, Jesus, a very unique man. He, he portrays Jesus and has continually throughout this chapter portray, portrayed Jesus as one who willingly bears the curse of the law so that this unclean leper might be cleansed. Jesus takes upon himself all the burden of the law, of the law's demands when it comes to this leper that we're gonna, uh, we've read about and we're going to continue to look at. When it comes to his uncleanness and in the twist of irony, this newly clean leper is able to re-enter the ranks of society while we end the story with Jesus on the outside. I've titled the message. I'm never any good at titling messages. As I told Mark, I titled it inside out, mainly because I didn't want to go with some uh, uh, quirky, you know, common thing called the great exchange or something like that. But that's the point. There's a change here that happens uh, for the sake of God's glory in this story. The short narrative that uh, concerning this, this leper that we read about in these few verses, 40 through 45, it, it serves as both a conclusion and a transition in our text. It, it, first of all, it serves as somewhat of a conclusion to this initial introduction that, that Mark makes in his gospel. Not that the introduction runs the entirety of chapter 1, but we'll find there's a break as he moves into chapter 2. And in many cases, chapter divisions aren't all that great, but I would say in this case, chapter divisions are good. There is a, a finality, in a sense, moving into something additional. So it serves as a conclusion, and it serves as a transition. You see, in, in, in this chapter, Mark has initially portrayed this unique man named Jesus that he introduces as 
Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, this, this man, then, we see is testified to by John in fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's the reason why Mark imports the Old Testament text from Malachi 3, which is a reinterpretation of Exodus 23.20. And then he includes Isaiah 40, verse 3, to show that John is fulfilling Old Testament scripture. And this is an important note that we need to understand, the fulfillment of the scripture, uh, to, to see that John is a harbinger or a forerunner of somebody significant, the very Messiah himself. In which Isaiah 40, verse 3, then tells us that he is to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight his paths. That is, the, the path that this Lord, this person Jesus, is going to go on the, to fulfill his mission. We then see that he is declared to be the very person that Mark claims him to be, the Son of God, by this voice from heaven. And it's not so much the fact that there's this miraculous voice from heaven that is the significant marker there, but that it is, again, a fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture, Psalm 2, where God declares that he set his son on his holy hill, this son to whom the nations, the kings of the world, should come and bow down and kiss the son, lest his anger be kindled. And then he tells us that, Blessed are all those who take refuge in this one, this son, which is now declared by this voice from heaven upon Jesus, his beloved son. He then is compelled to go into the wilderness and he endures Satan's temptations. He's he's followed by men. He teaches with unique authority, unlike others. He commands demons. He heals the sick. We've seen all this throughout this, this narrative that Mark has strung together to portray particularly the identity and person and work of this man, Jesus, who Mark seems to think is, in fact, the very Son of God. There's no doubt that Mark's selection of narratives to include in this account, which is purposeful, it doesn't include everything he could say, but he chooses certain ones to include in this account to point to the very authority and power of Jesus. We've seen that again throughout all these episodes. But this final narrative concerning the leper, adds an additional element to these previous unique characteristics of this newcomer, this unique person, Jesus Christ. And that element we find introduced is the will of Christ. And so we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But in addition to this added element throughout chapter 1, Mark has labored to make the identity of Jesus the center focus. And, and while we might be tempted to read into this text as we enter into this narrative, uh, personal faith... Uh, Mark doesn't place the emphasis there, at least not yet. And we'll see that strategically handled as we shift into chapter 2. But we assume that there is the inherent ideal of personal faith as this leper approaches Christ. But again, Mark doesn't rest there. That's not Mark's concern at this time, the issue of faith. His concern at this time is the identity of the person that he is declaring to be the Son of God, this man, Jesus, who is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ. It seems, and I think Pastor Will actually even mentioned this in his introductory message, that Mark has it right. He understands that, that God comes before man and, and that Jesus comes before faith. Because you see, while there is a general perspective of what faith might be, biblical faith can only be such faith as it comes in connection with an understanding of who this person actually is, this person of Jesus. We can't just say, I have faith. And it be enough. It is has to have rooted. It has to be rooted in an object. And Mark sets us up to to understand where that faith is going to have to be rooted. And so, in a sense, as Mark concludes this chapter, he sets us up for what he's going to launch us into in chapter two, as he does introduce 
the purpose and the place of personal faith, as we're going to read about that in several weeks in chapter 2. And so, as this narrative concludes the ideal and identity of Christ and, and begins to introduce us into personal faith, we begin to see the place that this text falls. Now, one additional note that we need to understand before we walk through this text is that Mark also introduces this issue of the law, the Mosaic law, which he's not done to this point. And it's very significant. We might read over it very carefully as we, I mean, very carelessly as we often do some things in narrative text. But we need to understand that the introduction of the Mosaic law here serves as a catalyst for how we are to understand this particular narrative. In fact, it also, again, prepares us for what's yet to come because it's going to be the very issue of the law that Jesus is going to face great difficulty over in several narratives to come as the Pharisees attempt to trick him and trap him concerning the law. But this issue of the Mosaic law introduced in this text becomes the hinge upon which this, the purpose of this particular narrative uh, swings or turns. And then finally, by way of context or wrap, placing this text in a, a place for us to see the full picture, I need to kind of back up and maybe remind you of some things I know have been introduced and talked about in several of the messages along the way. You see, because in the introduction of this gospel, Mark does begin with the Old Testament. He selects a couple Old Testament quotes. And again, I mentioned it from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, again, that's not arbitrary. It wasn't like Mark just kind of weaved through the Old Testament to find something good that would fit, kind of like most of us have done our research projects in school. There's something that sounds good and fits there. Now, there's purpose not only by Mark, but by the, the Holy Spirit inspiring this recording. And, and when he records Isaiah verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 3, he records a voice crying, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Now, I know that Pastor Will touched on this in his first message, but I wanted to kind of elaborate on that just a little bit more. Because what Mark then begins to do throughout this chapter, and even somewhat beyond, is he, he ties these narratives together with a common thread. And the common threads uh, rest upon two specific terms in that, that Old Testament quotation. First, which Josh kind of took us back last week and walked through, was the term that's translated wilderness or desolate or isolated places throughout this chapter. It keeps coming back to this concept of wilderness, which serves to, to cast our minds to what? Just as it would the Jews, the Old Testament exodus, deliverance through the wilderness. And so that becomes a thread through which uh, uh, Mark begins to tie these narratives together. A voice crying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. The second term, which might be a little more obscure, is the word that's translated, make straight. Now, as Pastor Will dealt with that in an introduction, he talked about the, the call to action in the urgency throughout this gospel as we see this, this concept of immediacy. And, and this is the vehicle, the literary vehicle by which Mark moves forward his, his gospel. He keeps going immediately and immediately and immediately and immediately. Now, the term that's translated immediately and the term that's translated straight in that Old Testament con- quotation is the very same word. It's euthus. And, and, it's, and, 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 and you might better see it if we translate it a little more awkwardly as and straightway. And straightway, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And straightway, the fever left her. And in our text, we'll see it twice. And straightway, the leprosy left. And straightway, God, Jesus sent him out. 
And the point is that these two terms become this thread that's weaved throughout. And, and here's the, I guess, the, the punchline, so to speak, is that when we read that Old Testament quote, make straight his path, we might better understand that to be make or unveil, make clear the mission of the Lord, that is, of Christ. And so it then becomes Mark's purpose in these narratives to not just tell us stories, uh, neat stories of miracles, so we go, wow, like all the, the crowds did, but rather for us to begin to see on this side of the cross how this man Jesus becomes the embodiment of the, the promises of God and that he does so on a particular mission from which, from the beginning of his ministry, everything, everything, these, these side narratives that seem not to to kind of be on their own. They're all working together to lead to a particular place. It is making clear or unveiling the very purposeful path of the Lord, and that is of this man, Jesus Christ. And so these two terms come together in this text in Mark 1, chapter or verses 40 through 45, as we see these two terms come together. We find immediately, once again, weaved into that, this straight way, reminding us of the purposefulness of the mission of Christ And then, of course, we find Jesus resting at the very end of our passage in the wilderness. And so I want to walk through briefly through this text. And and we can really talk about this text in three easy divisions. We can speak of it or we see this as we walk through. Very simply, there's a bold request. The leper comes to Christ. He makes a request. And then we see a willing response of Jesus to this leper's request. And then we'll see the attending result. So. The request, the response, and the result. So the text tells us first that a leper, just kind of generally, you know, and, and kind of setting that up, up to this point, there's been some very general uh, uh, mentioning just previously of many sick people with diseases and demon-possessed coming to Jesus. And now Mark zeroes in on this very particular case. He says that a leper came to him, imploring him and, and, and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, we could th- stop and talk about leprosy for a while, but here's the reality. Everything we need to know about leprosy to understand this text is found in the text. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. We don't need to understand all the medical un- ramifications. What we need to understand, if you go back and read Levit- Leviticus 13 and 14, is that leprosy covers a vast multitude of skin diseases, but all result, result, resulting, excuse me, in the condition of being unclean, which in itself had a consequence to it that was very significant. And we'll look at that here in just a little bit. But this leper, he comes to Jesus and he implores him, which I guess you could say the coming to Jesus in the first place was kind of radical uh, for this guy to do. And so we definitely do see the entrance of personal faith. But again, we don't want to go on that side road yet. Let that linger in the back of your mind because we will. Faith comes into this very significantly in some later narratives as soon as we turn to chapter 2. But right now, everything is not pointing to the leper himself or even uh, uh, the the intending result of the leper, but everything is meant to help us see Jesus above it all. And so this leper comes and he makes this request and says, If you will, you can make me clean. Well, it seems, as we've read, that. The power of Jesus has been broadcast already. It's really, I mean, while we have to deal with this so-called messianic secret, which I honestly have trouble with, uh, it's a reality that people know what Jesus is doing, right? I mean, he goes to Simon Peter's mother's house. 
a mother-in-law's house and he heals her. And it says, then all the people are bringing all these sick. Then we get that general about all the multitudes bringing. So a lot of people already know that this guy, Jesus, is something different. He has some special power. And so this leper just kind of falls in line and he approaches Jesus and he makes his request. But he assumes... He assumes at this point, it's not in question, the power of Jesus. That's been established. This guy can do it. But what's introduced now is this conditional question. If you are willing. And this reality, this this question in this narrative is is really what carries the the ultimate meaning. Uh, The leper posing that question causes us to, to ask another question. And that has to do with the willingness of God. You know, we could sit around and talk about and argue about free will of man. But really what we need to talk about is the free will of God here as he's engaged in this mission through Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And how that comes in contact with the reality of the gospel. If you are willing, you can. You, are, you have the power to make me clean. Power not in question. Willingness of God absolutely in question. And so as, as this leper comes and he poses this question, it makes us kind of go, okay, wait a second. If Mark is seeking to unpack for us the very purposeful mission of Christ, then what's going to come in play there is God's will, God's purposes, God's decrees, what God intends to take place. And what we understand is that in the midst of all that's going on, especially in the chaos of the crowds coming and, and all this stuff that's just inundating Christ with this revelation of his great power. It, from a human perspective, we can see, wow, you know, this could undo some things. This is going to detract. This is going to cause a problem. And, and not that we shouldn't ponder those questions, but the ultimate reality is that the will of God in, at work in the man of Christ is an absolute control. And so whatever takes place, all these healings, all these demon exorcisms, all all these things are happening at the direction, the purposeful direction of a sovereign God. This is not happenstance. It's not arbitrary. It's not just like, you know, just because people walk up and and, and Christ just said, okay, well, if I have to, well, then I'll, I'll do something for you since you happened along the way and happened to be begging me. That's not the way it works at all. Uh, the, the reality is that God is purposeful in this mission in the person of Christ. And, and you see that as you read the rest of the Gospels and you understand that Jesus didn't cast out all the demons. He didn't heal every person. He didn't make all the blind to see. He did not raise every dead person back to life. He only did some. Now, why? I don't know. Except for to say that God had an absolute purpose in the midst of it. And so as this leper approaches and asks this question, if you're willing, it it reveals to us the reality of the purpose of God in the midst of interacting in this world. And it reminds me that, you know, our goal or our purpose as followers of Christ are not to create for uh, ourselves the way things should be, but rather we are to submit to the purpose and will of God. Now, in this case, it worked out great, didn't it? Didn't it? For the leper? Yeah, it worked out good for him. But the reality is that there are some times where God's will is not to heal. And what we see in this this conundrum, so to speak, of how do we balance these things when we are asking God certain things to do for us, we recognize that our place is not to get what we want or for things to work out the way we think they should work out. 
But our place is to submit ourselves to the purpose of God's mission as it was here in this narrative concerning the leper. God's mission is our mission. God determines and decrees what should and shouldn't be done. God determines how the church should act in the midst of this culture in this day and age and how we should express ourselves, not us, based on cultural trends and fads and being cool and popular. So God's will is absolutely at work in the midst of this. So as we see this will introduced, we then see the response as this leper makes this request concerning the power of Christ. You can do it, but will you? We then move into the response of uh, this, this man, Jesus. And the Bible tells us that having compassion, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will be clean. So we see immediately in that question, are you willing, God's purpose. Now, I'm going to come back to the faith for just a moment because I, I, we need to be careful not to read merely that God, Jesus did something here just because this guy did something. Because what happens is we get, we get it turned on its head, right? We start saying, well, you know, if we do, then God will do. And so, again, that's not Mark's purpose here in this text for us to see. Well, the leper had such great faith and he went to Jesus. And because of that, then Jesus then did something. But rather that God was working out his purposes to unpack the mission of Christ as the one who's fulfilling everything the Old Testament pointed to. As fulfilling the one who heals the lame and makes the blind men to see, makes lepers clean and, and all those kinds of things. This is the one that everything in the Old Testament has spoken of. We see that unpacked when um, John sends his disciples back to Jesus when he's in jail. You remember, you know that story? John the Baptist, the one who said, this is the man. He's in jail now. Maybe in a weak moment, he sends his disciples to say, you know, go see Jesus and say, are you really the one? And when he does, what does he say? He points back to the Old Testament and he says... The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised. You tell me. And the answer is absolutely. He's exactly the, everything the Old Testament said that he would be. And so he is, in fact, the man. So now Jesus says, or it tells us in this text that Jesus have having compassion. And so they introduce to us one more element that we might want to search out just a little bit when we think about the concept of compassion. Now, if you're a student of the Bible and you really study these things deep, you might come in to understand that some manuscripts have a little bit of a, a different wording there. Some of them will say, in Jesus being indignant, stretched out his hand and touched him. And so the battle is, you know, well, does it really say compassion or anger, indignant? And, and really, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Because the reality is that when Jesus sees this leper who is racked with the effects of sin in this world, regardless of the reasons, whether you put it all on this man or on sin in general, this is what happens. And so when Jesus sees this man coming to him, his response, because of the reality of sin in this world, you can say he definitely had compassion. His compassion was a deep moving feeling for what's happened to God's great creation as a result of sin in this world. And you can be absolutely certain that he was angry about that. He was indignant towards sin's effects in this world. This was his creation. We are his children made in the image of God. And this is what sin's done. So, yeah, compassion, absolutely. Indignant, anger, absolutely. But as he does this, it brings the reality, this, this concept of God having compassion upon people who 
don't deserve it. Who are unclean, untouchable. And it casts us into our very day. And it makes it sets us up for where this narrative is going to end us with really one significant point. And it's this very compassion that you as a believer need to understand that you did nothing to, to warrant. It's, we call it, speak of grace. This compassion that God has for lost people who have been deceived in sin by the wiles of Satan in this world and, and just sin's effects on all of creation. This is God's attitude towards us in general. He has this compassion. Yes, he is indignant about sin, but he is compassionate towards his creation and he desires to make all things new. And so we go forth understanding this is the position of our Savior. This is his response. And so we naturally should understand that as the extension of Christ in this world, his body, that we too are to have this posture towards the world. And sadly to say, uh, I can't speak for you, but I often don't. Are you like me sometimes? You look at sinners and you go, I can't believe they would do that. Are you like that? You know, when we look down our noses and we think, why would somebody do that stupid thing? How dare they do that? And we forget that, but for the grace of God, there go I. And maybe you didn't come out of that deep, dark background. You know, I'm sure most of your backgrounds are not as dark as what I'm hearing Pastor Wills is. Uh, But... uh, but even if you didn't experience all the, the, the sin of the world and the consequences thereof that come as a result, you still have to stand forth and say, but by the grace of God, there go I. And it is God's great compassion towards us that has even given us the opportunity to, to receive the call of God upon our lives and to respond by repenting and believing the very imperative that Mark begins with, Right? As a result of the fact that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now breaking into this present evil age, we are to repent and believe. But we cannot, apart from the posture of God towards us being that of compassion towards undeserving, filthy, rotten sinners like me. Anything that we are that's good is only because of the grace of God. I used to say that when you look at me and you see something good... That's Jesus, you see. If you look at me and you got some bad things you can say, you're finally seeing me. But for the grace of God, they're grass. So, so this leper comes. He says, if you're willing, if, you, if, if it's within the purpose of your mission to do something about my condition, then I know you can. And Jesus, because of his compassion, he simply stretches out his hand and he touches. He does the unthinkable. He touches a leper and he says, I will be clean. And then the Bible tells us, and straightway, there's the unpacking of the mission of God. The leprosy leaves. This is, this, is, this is a telltale sign that this act, what's happening here, is unveiling the very purpose of God. But then we come to the final portion of this text, which is the most difficult, which I'm trying to spend very little time on. And there's three questions that come to mind or, or raised for me as we deal with this text. And we're going to go through this real quick, and I'm going to leave a lot unsaid so you can ask Pastor Will about them later. But first question, why does Jesus command this leper to tell no one? I mean, that's not, this isn't new, but it is new and it's his first time that he heals somebody and tells them that. And so it raises the question, why? It doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, again, we can deal with this messianic secret thing, but I, I still haven't wrapped my mind around that. Because I know that ultimately it was God's desire to reveal Christ as the Son of God, the very answer to all of 
sin in this world. So, so why does Jesus command a man uh, uh, who he's just healed to not say anything? But then what would then the obedience to the Mosaic law that Jesus then follows up with, go and do this according to the law, what does obedience to the Mosaic law testify about? Because the text tells us that he, he tells the man to go and show himself to the priest and, and offer to them, to the priest, uh, that which is commanded by the law of Moses as a testimony to them. And so it raises a question about what? And then thirdly, why does Mark detail for us? Why did he give us a glimpse into this, the disobedience of this man to Jesus? Which, you know, we could spend a lot of time surmising and assuming and trying to draw a conclusion. But ultimately, I think that the purpose of all this drives us to one particular reality that we, we're going to end with. And so, again, the text tells us that Jesus heals him and he says, now go and say nothing to anyone. I mean, a simple command. And, and again, that seems ludicrous. Why would you not? We, we preach all the time. I mean, if God touches your life, would you not want to shout it from the rooftops? And so we can completely understand the response of this leper. But nevertheless, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Well, now, again, it's not new. He starts out by, in the beginning, we see that he, uh, a demon-possessed man comes in the synagogue. And he, he, this guy starts declaring, I know who you are. You're the son of God. And it's, Jesus says, be silent, come out of him. Now, Mark doesn't give us any explanation there. He just says, be silent. But then later we're told that he's casting out demons and he would not permit them to say anything. Why? He gives us a reason then because he knows who Jesus, because they know who Jesus is. Again, it gives us the reason, but it doesn't satisfy our curiosity. But why would Jesus do this? So now with this particular man, he, he does the same thing. So whether or not the reasoning is the same, I'm not certain. I honestly don't know. You know, did Jesus just command the demons to be silent because he didn't want his, the revelation of his identity to come from the mouth of demons, but rather by his, the teaching of the word of the Old Testament and his personal work? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, was it because he didn't want people to, to come for the wrong reasons, for what he could do for them, rather than for who he was? Maybe. And very likely you could read all those things in there. But nevertheless, this point serves as a catalyst to move us to the ultimate purpose. Because then the other command, don't go and say anything, but instead, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the synagogue. I want you to be obedient to the Mosaic law. Now, understand that Jesus' command to do so was not merely a command to be obedient to tradition. In this case, it was to be obedient to God's word because it was God who gave that law. And if you go back and read Leviticus 13 and 14, it's a great detail of what leprosy consists of. And then it's a long detail in chapter 14 of how one must respond in order to reenter society. And so uh, what Jesus commands this, this man to do is to be obedient to the very word of God, which reminds us that Jesus didn't come to subvert the law because the law was bad. He didn't come to do away with the law. He tells us that numerous times in, in the Gospels, but he came to fulfill the law, which means he's going to live up to the law. He's going to live in full accordance to the word of God. And this is just another glimpse of that very thing introduced in Mark's Gospel that he heals somebody. Now, be obedient to God. And I guess you could say he's right there saying, be obedient to what I've already said to do when I gave the word to Moses in the Old Testament. I want you to do this. But that raises another question because the Old Testament also teaches us through the law that not only was the leper an unclean person, but that if he was touched by someone, then they too become unclean. Which raises several other questions for us about Jesus, who is a human being while he's fully divine. We know that, but he's a human being. They haven't figured it out. Touching a leper 
by society, that would render him unclean, regardless, in accordance to the word of God. And so as we read this, we see that Jesus tells them, don't say anything, but instead do this, which becomes the hinge point of the final episode. The man goes out. What did he do? He does the exact opposite. He tells everybody, and the, specifically the, the terminology used in the gospel, he goes out preaching. It's a word for preaching. He goes out preaching Jesus and spreading the word, doing what we would encourage anybody to do. But then what does the text say? The text said, and as a result, he did so, so that Jesus was no longer, or Jesus specifically could no longer, or we could say in conjunction with the text and the word used, Jesus no longer had the power to openly enter into the town, but was out in desolate places. Now we're back to the wilderness again. The terminology used remind us of the wilderness, the, the very place in which God's way would be made straight. God's way would be unveiled, made clear to us concerning the purpose and mission of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We're back there again, but we're there for a different kind of reason. We were there in temptation as he overcomes the temptation of Satan on our behalf. He was out there praying, as Josh talked about last week, uh, in, in this, this desolate or desert or wilderness place. And now he's back in this place. The one significant difference here in the text is the word that's used alongside of it. And it's the word translated for he's outside in desolate places. It's the very same terminology that's used in the Greek version of Leviticus 13 and 14. And let me read that text for you. The leprous person who has disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be, in specific word, outside the camp. So Jesus encounters a leper. He does the unthinkable. He touches him. He cleanses him. He commands him to be obedient to God's word. The man's not. He tells everybody. And as a result of telling everybody, Jesus now must reside outside the camp. And that's where we find him. And that's where the story ends. No further explanation. And Mark's intention, his selection of this text is purposeful. Because exactly where we're supposed to be left, we're left realizing that Jesus, this man, this unique, a man with authority and power who's doing some amazing things, is going even further than just doing some great temporary miracles. He is changing places with the worst of the worst, the unclean. He's touching the unclean. He is taking upon himself the curse of the law. He was willing to be cast outside. Willing, right? If you're willing, why would he need to be willing? Because it was going to cost him something. Even as a human being in this historic position, it was going to cost him something. And he's outside now the camp, the towns and the cities. He's bearing the curse of the law. Granting freedom from the curse of the law to the one who is deserving of the curse of the law. Jesus' willingness to touch this unclean leper in order to make him clean and make him able to re-enter the camp resulted in him changing places with the leopard. The leper goes inside and Jesus goes out. In seeking to uphold the word of God to its fullest extent, Jesus takes the curse of the law upon himself in order to free 
The one, and we can put ourselves in the story, the ones deserving of the curse from that very curse. And this episode serves from the very beginning of the gospel of Mark. The, the gospel that runs very urgently to the cross. It serves as a pointer of the greatest exchange from the very beginning that would take place. And it was for that purpose and that purpose alone that Mark is teaching us already that Christ came. He didn't come to make the sick well, temporally, physically. He came to do something much grander, something that was eternal. He came to make the eternally sick eternally well. That was his mission. What was taking place now was only to unveil the mission and purpose of God. And so this story concludes this chapter with that in clarity. He didn't merely come for the, the kind of stuff we want personally. He came for some, the, what we needed. The ultimate exchange we know would take place when Jesus would go outside the camp ultimately and hang upon a cross and there bear the fullest burden of the curse of the law. Paul stated it this way in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So in light of Mark's narrative here, we are compelled to see the beauty of the sacrifice that Christ was willing to make on behalf of those who were not deserving of it. And that's every single one of us who sit here today. This was the purpose for which he came. Nothing else. Nothing was going to detract him from this purpose. No chaotic crowd, no mass media. God was in control of leading the path of the Lord straightway to the cross. Mark's hope in this gospel, and mine as well, is that all who hear this gospel will be given eyes to see the truth of the gospel and as a result would repent and believe the imperative command to all of us because the kingdom of God is at hand. It has broken through. And so it is, we are compelled to repent and believe, not just one time, but continually as believers. For those of us who already have seen the beauty of the gospel and we claim the name of Christian already, we've repented initially and believed and continue to do so, then we are compelled to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as Paul exhorts us to do in, the, in his letters. And this is to declare and display the gospel in the same way that Christ did. Now, wait, I don't know about you. I'm not able to heal the sick. Best I can do is throw a few Tylenol at you. Ask Aubrey. Or actually, all I can do is say, get up and take you some medicine. That's the best I can do. Now, we can't heal the sick. We can't cleanse lepers. I can't. I can't raise the dead. But we can serve as a very real expression of the gospel to those around us. And that means more than just saying right stuff. Because we need to understand that like Christ, it may very well, and I would say it will, if we embrace it, cost us something significant. It, it, it will, in our experience, in our lives, cost us some relationships. It will possibly cost us some career moves. It, it might cost us our present job. It, it's going to cost us something, and it's gonna, we're going to feel it deeply. It's going to hurt. That's the nature of the gospel. That's the bearing forth the marks of the gospel in our bodies. is to live forth for the gospel at all cost, knowing that the Bible guarantees us that it will cost. It will most certainly require us to go outside the camp where the unclean reside so that they in return might enter the kingdom. Now, I know that 
121 is a church that has kind of made that a purposeful position of your mission is to not just try to build a kingdom inside the walls of a building, but rather to go outside the camp for the purpose of reaching those who are the unreachable, the unlovable, because that's what Christ did. In fact, the author of Hebrews would interpret this reality this way. He says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, and this is to us, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, which might be something that hurts. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The greatest thing this world needs is a church to be the church. Hear that the church to be the church, not the church to look like a circus and the place where everybody wants to go have fun. Not that I'm against good stuff, definitely not against good food. But the the greatest thing the world needs is the church to be the church. And the result of that will be that some people will hate you. Absolutely hate you. If we are who we say we are, we can expect that some people will hate us. And we have to keep being faithful to the call. And quit morphing ourselves to fit in so that people will like us. And somehow we might woo the enemies of God to love our Savior. Because the only thing that will make that happen... Is the beauty of the gospel. And as a church, we're called to take that out there to them, to make the exchange, to give up our comfort, to give up the nice things in life at times, to, to offer somebody else a better situation and us maybe suffer as a result. That's what we're called to do. That's the radical nature of the gospel. I can't say how that works for you individually or collectively, but I can guarantee you that it is the call upon your life to be Christ to the lepers of the world. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And I pray that in the midst of these moments, in the midst of my ramblings, that your spirit penetrate hearts. And then in spite of me would, would speak truth and compel us, Lord, to, to more passionately seek to serve the, the cause of the gospel. To, to not only be harbingers of the gospel in word, but to actually bear in our bodies the marks of the affliction of our Savior, so that the world might not only hear, but they will see the reality of the gospel lived out. So, Father, we ask now for you to to take this word and to do what only you can do, uh, that it might be more than an, an oratory, but that it would be the word of God living, proclaimed to the hearts of your people, and that it would stir us, not just in this moment or in the next few moments, but as we walk out these doors and as we go outside the camp into the world around us, into the workplace, into the play place, in the marketplace, and we recognize that everywhere we are, we are to be Christ willing to touch the unclean at all the risks that may come with it so that the unclean, the unlovable, the unreachable might miraculously be cleansed and loved and reached. Help us to be faithful to that call, not for our own benefit, but for the great glory of our 
marvelous God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up everything to change places with me. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen.